Bastien's Southern Queries. I'm India Bastien. And I'm Aubrey Calvin. Together we explore being a part of the LGBTQ community in the South. A quick note on terminology. On this show, we let guests identify in the best way they're comfortable with. Some of the terms or topics might be different, new, or uncomfortable to you. That discomfort is part of what we're exploring together. We encourage you to listen with an open heart and continue these discussions with your larger community. We encourage any meaningful and polite feedback. Thanks, and welcome to Southern Queries. So today's guest is Rachel Garbus. Rachel is a writer, performer, and oral history podcast maker, splitting her time between Atlanta, Georgia, and Brooklyn, New York. She is perfectly ill-fitting in both cities and has yet to keep a plant alive in either, but she loves both her homes dearly. She writes satire and muses on queer culture, and you can find her on stage performing improv, sketch comedy, and live recordings. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We are so excited to have you here today. Um, I just wanted to ask you, first and foremost, how is social distancing going for you? Oh, my gosh. The question of 2020, isn't it? My goodness. Well, um, the only noteworthy thing about my social distancing uh, is that I'm staying in a cabin on a lake that is only accessible by boat which has made for some exciting times. I got here in April. The lake was still mostly frozen. So uh, <laughs> it's been a, a whole encyclopedia of learning how to do things that I did not think I would be able to do, such as chopping wood and building fires and hauling water. Uh, but as the weather got warmer, life here got easier. And, and now it's pretty smooth sailing. So I would say we're all just trying to figure out how to do the world now under these new guidelines. Uh, so it's been, you know, a source of grief and anxiety, uh, but also a source of growth and and also small joys. And I feel like that's what I'm really learning in this time is, is finding small joys wherever they are. Rachel, being in a cabin sounds so dreamy. <laughs> well, wow. uh, yeah, it's been it's had its dreamy moments. The sunsets are are worth writing home about. Yay! Well, I was going to ask: Are you one of those? Have you caught on to the baking trend? Because I've been baking a lot, baking a lot of bread and starting my own sourdough. And have you caught on to that or no? Um, I I haven't. One reason is that the oven here is broken, <laughs> so there's very little baking to be done. Um, but I definitely will say that for all of the baking I have not been doing, um, craft beer exploring I have been doing. So uh, I have nothing to show for my time in this cabin uh, in terms of culinary skill, but I've tried a lot of really good local craft beers. Nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah. But good for you. And sourdough starter feels like the thing to be doing. I'm very curious about it. You'll have to give me some tips after here. Well, if I can ever do it successfully, I will. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So um, my first question for you, Rachel, is how do you identify and why is that identity important to you? Mm, that's that's a great question, India. Um, I identify as 
just several things, maybe as they all do. I I think if I was going to capture it swiftly, I would identify as a queer woman. Uh, if I was going to dig a level deeper, I would say that I do identify as a lesbian. And I think that the term lesbian is so dropped maybe now more than ever. So I'm very aware of that when I claim that term, but I also feel that there is power in claiming it uh, and then acknowledging perhaps its limitations uh, and also uh, the sort of the freedom inherent within a term like that. So yeah, I identify as a queer woman. I identify as a lesbian. I identify as Jewish and white, which are things that I was born into that I think have certainly informed the way I move through the world uh, and I think that I continue to interrogate now. But yeah, I think all those identities are important and then I think that uh, queer is just a word that I always come back to. I love that your podcast is named after a, a pun on the word queer because I think it's such a great word. I think <laughs> it's so inclusive. It captures so much of what I feel is the work that we are trying to do in this community, which is just make people feel that they have a home if they have ever been made to feel different for their um, expression of self or their expression of desire. And queer to me feels so inclusive of that uh, and so um, uninterested in siloing people into one label or another. And I think that all the other labels can be useful. Uh, and I certainly, I'm a writer, so I love words and I love a diversity of words. And so I feel limited if there aren't enough words. So I think we can't stop at queer, uh, but I think that is the true signature of my identity when I think about it is queer. Oh, such a great answer. Such a good answer. <laughs> and well, well, you said that this idea of the, this idea of lesbian as a term, you said it's a bit fraught. What did you mean by mm -hmm. that? Well, I think that it is. Uh, well, one, it's just it's such a loaded word. It sounds loaded. You know, it's it's lesbian. There's something almost vulgar about the word that I was petrified and horrified by when I was a child. You know, the idea of somebody accusing me of being a lesbian when I was a teenager was was totally horrifying to me. I, I just it felt like a like a bad word. And so I think that claiming it uh, with pride is a thing that I've really had to learn how to do because I associated it for so long with something vulgar uh, that there feels like there's power there too. But I think that when we are working towards a queer community that feels inclusive of gender, that a term like lesbian can feel limiting or can feel exclusive. Mm -hmm. And I think that, and this is the thing that I've experienced much more in New York than in Atlanta, where I think that people are still um, working through uh, gender and uh, maybe sort of still embedded in some ideas about gender that come from, uh, you know, heteronormative Southern culture, perhaps, you know, it's obvious that there's, we could go on for hours about that and perhaps we'll get into that. Um, but <laughs> certainly in Brooklyn, I think the, the term lesbian, um, you know, and Brooklyn has really become a, a community and a place where people of all gender expressions are living. So a, a, a huge and celebrated 
uh, and wonderful trans community, and then also a lot of non-binary folks who are there uh, sort of staking out new territory in gender expression. And in that new wild world of people really reshaping the way that we express gender, the way we talk about gender, sometimes I think lesbian can feel kind of dated. Like it's kind of a, a callback to an earlier time where um, there were only two genders and then there were types of desire at, within those genders. So you were attracted to this or you were attracted to this. And I think that as people have pushed back against that, there is a way that the term lesbian feels like, is it falling behind? Is that a useful term? And I think that for me as a woman, as a feminist, as a person who feels very grounded in my womanhood and very excited to accept more people into the fold of womanhood, but still wanting to hold space for that, you know, I don't believe that throwing off um, a gender binary means that celebrating womanhood or celebrating manhood for that, you know, for that matter, that, that feeling grounded in who you are um, is a thing to shy away from, but then at the same time being conscious of, uh, of shutting people out in that conversation, you know, of, of being so celebratory of your gender that you are limiting ways for other people to express theirs or feel proud of theirs. So I think it's a loaded term uh, in that way. I think it, it still has outside uh, pejorative associations that I think are worth pushing back against. So it, it almost feels loaded from both ends. It feels loaded from within and from without. And to me, uh, I think what better reason to, you know, to keep using it and to keep throwing it out there and to keep tasting it on your tongue and, and thinking about what it means. Ah, Rachel, I, I relate to you so hardcore with everything you just said. <laughs> um, I was telling Aubrey in an earlier episode that sometimes when I'm talking to heterosexual people or people who are not as well acquainted with the LGBTQ community here in the South, if I say the word lesbian, I can literally see them clutching their invisible pearls <laughs> because pearls. they're, they're uh -huh. startled by the word lesbian. And I was also talking about how lesbian has a lot of like pornographic connotation to it so it feels dirty when really it shouldn't mm -hmm. be um and then i also brought up the l word on how even in our own culture lesbian in the past at least for me i've encountered it being really limiting and i had my own reservations of using the word lesbian as part of my identification because i didn't want to exclude non-binary folk or trans folk for mm -hmm. that matter so yes yes to everything you just said <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and yes to, to talking about it and to thinking through them and and to not shying away from hard conversations because that I think is the thing that everybody should be doing, but queer people have had to do and thus do particularly well is not shy away from hard conversations and put them out there and put them out there with humor and with grace and with uh, kindness, which I think is one of the many things that I love about queer community. Love it. Um, my next question for you would be. Can you tell us a little bit about your coming out story? Yes, I'd love to. <laughs> Why do you say it like that? <laughs> what, that I'd love to? No, India, like, can you tell us about your coming out story? <laughs> well, I've heard it, so. Okay, all right. Oh, yeah, India has a, a pre-information loaded here. Uh, Yes, I think um, my 
Like telling that story is is noteworthy and distinct um, in one particular way, and that is that I grew up in Massachusetts in the 90s in a town that had a lot of lesbians in it. And that, I think, is pretty unusual. I think most people who grew up in the 80s and 90s, uh, there was not very much queer visibility in the world, in the media. There certainly were very few queer women, and very few people had people they actually knew who were gay. And I grew up in Northampton, Massachusetts, which I think, I have since looked this up, I'm pretty sure has the highest concentration of lesbians per capita of anywhere in the world except maybe San Francisco. Uh, and it's a small college town. It's not a big city. It just, Smith College is there and the five colleges are there. And I just, over the past 40 or 50 years has really become a mecca for queer women, especially queer women raising kids. So my experience of lesbianism and queerness as a kid uh, was very pedestrian. I mean, they, I, the lesbians I knew were lesbians raising kids, very similarly to my parents. And, you know, with minivans and soccer practices and golden retrievers. And, you know, it was a very uh, boring idea of queerness. It didn't feel remarkable at all. Um, but it also felt it felt very incongruent with my concept of who I was. And I think that that was the tension for me that that made it hard for me to come out and and made it take a long time for me to feel brave enough to do that. Because while I knew that queerness was acceptable and celebrated and that my family knew queer women uh, and were intimate friends of theirs and that that was totally acceptable, I didn't fear judgment from my family or my friends or my community so much as I just really pushed away from the idea that that's who I was. I, I was a super girly girl. I wore dresses all the time. I was extremely uh, good in school and very disciplined and very much about doing my homework and, you know, practicing my flute for 45 minutes a day and doing absolutely everything my teachers wanted. And you know, I was really, I had a very carefully delineated sense of self uh, that was very rooted in the idea of being perfect and being perfect and exemplary in all things. And being gay didn't seem perfect. That felt like the opposite of being perfect. That felt wrong, that felt perverted, that felt uh, not what perfect girls do. Perfect girls, you know, date perfect boys and they go to high school and they date, you know, the sexy the quarterback. boy school and they get to the prom queen. The quarterback, exactly. <laughs> I went to a performing arts school, so we did not have a quarterback. But oh, well, The idea yes. of like a handsome god, I, I totally would have crushed on the quarterback, just like, you know, for propriety things. <laughs> I was all about doing the right thing. And I think that, yeah, being queer just didn't fit in with that. So I, I was a writer from a very young age, so I was constantly writing stories about my glamorous future that awaited me where I was, you know, either a movie star or a Broadway star or a something star, always a star, very rich, very beautiful, very much in love with a very handsome man. And that was sort of always the narrative. And I just, I couldn't square my idea of who I was supposed to be with my, um, with who I was and what I was feeling. And that really is the truth and what a powerful thing desire is that desire sort of trumps this fantasia that you build around yourself like when you <laughs> feel 
desire and attraction, desire feels like it can drive a lot um, of that change. And I think that after, you know, between the ages of 17 to 21, I I sort of allowed myself to act on that desire to kiss girls and to have sex with girls and to try that out and see what that felt like. And I think eventually I felt brave enough to um, to own that in, you know, in a bigger way. And it, it was gradual and there was lots of shame involved and all kinds of, um, you know, mental pretzels to convince myself that what was happening wasn't really happening. But I think about the time that I was 22, uh, I really felt ready to, to claim that. So I came out to my parents right after college and they were, of course, really supportive having lots of lesbian friends that did not really feel surprising to them or exciting in any particular way. Uh, and yeah, and then I moved to Atlanta and I think that another unusual thing about my experience is that I'm not from the South and from Massachusetts and I moved to the South, which people think of, I think maybe you both are also familiar with these ideas about the South, that that's sort of the worst place to be queer, the worst place to be gay. That's not a place you would go. That's not a place you would want to be and be gay and certainly not a place you would go to discover your sexuality. Um, but because Atlanta is such a mecca for queer community, it became the place that I discovered myself. It's the place where I had my first girlfriend. It's the place where I found queer community for the first time. And so for me, the South is where I learned to be queer and where I learned to be okay with my queerness. And so that feels kind of remarkable too, that I came from a place that was so open and accepting. Massachusetts was the first state to legalize gay marriage in 2003 and was so closeted and internalized all this homophobia. And then I had to move to Georgia to find myself. That feels kind of unusual as well. A hundred percent. You left the liberal accepting state to come to Georgia to find yourself. Yeah, Mm -hmm. crazy. So kind of picking up on that, what you had said, part of your coming out story, you talked about being a girly girl who likes dresses. And then, and I'm going to go a a dive back a year ago into your writing. In 2019, you wrote this piece for Wussy Magazine, and they're an Mm Atlanta-based they're an Atlanta-based LGBTQ magazine about a femme lesbian teacher. So mm-hmm. what is this idea about being femme and how do you think that maybe relates to, did it make it harder for you to come out or uh, what does that mean to you being femme? Yeah, uh, that's such a good question too. Uh, so gosh, yeah, what is femme? Also I think can be a loaded term. Um, in addition to lesbian, but 100%. I think femme to me also feels really, I feel really grounded in that term. And I think that that, you know, sometimes we come to ourselves through language and sometimes language comes to us through us. You know, I think that understanding who we are, sometimes it helps to have a word to try it out and see if that feels right. And I think that femme for me was very much that of having a, like a word that signified this way that I moved through the world helped me feel okay about moving to the world in that way and owning it because yeah, I'm femme. I mean, I, if I could wear a sundress every day of the year, I would. <laughs> That's <laughs> it. My most absolute favorite thing in the world is a, is a sundress. 
And I've always, yeah, I've always worn my hair long. And of course, there are so many ways of moving through the world femme. I think the term femme to me just feels like a, a signifier of feminine energy and how you lean into your feminine energy. Um, and there are so many myriad ways of being femme. But I think that, you know, because clothes and styling are some of the ways that we signify to the rest of the world who we are, those things feel like they play into that. So wearing dresses and having long hair and maybe wearing makeup. I don't wear very much makeup, but sometimes I like to wear makeup. Um, those things feel like they maybe play into that. But I just, I think I feel really at home in my feminine energy. And I think one of the reasons being at this cabin has felt really empowering is because it has forced me to stretch my feminist to include building fires and chopping <laughs> wood, you know, things that aren't necessarily included in that. So I think it's, it's forced me to push, uh, push past maybe stereotypes about what I'm capable of as a femme woman um, because whether you can build a fire and wear a sundress, you know, those two things have nothing to do with each other. So that's been a, a nice discovery here. Uh, my sixth grade teacher um, was what we would then refer to as a lipstick lesbian. I think that also feels a little, maybe not a term that sits so well anymore, um, but she certainly was a femme queer woman. She was married to a woman and she was this wholesome, sun-kissed Midwesterner and I just was so dazzled by her. She, um, and she wore sundresses as many days of the year as she could and she was just, she was a really wonderful teacher i just really loved her i worshiped all my teachers so of course i was gonna worship her um but she very much was the first uh she was the first lesbian i'd ever seen who who presented herself and looked in a way that i myself wanted to look and i think that that was a big that was a big moment for me oh, oh, oh. It didn't mean that I came out in sixth grade. I think it took, that was, you know, when I was first even beginning to understand my own desire. But it certainly, to, to have uh, an emblem of that, to have an example of queerness in a person and, a, and in a self-expression that looks like what I wanted to be, that, that was really important to me. And I think that I constructed a lot of my femme identity around her as I got older without even realizing that I had done that. And it was really in writing that article about femme presentation that I really thought about where my ideas about femme queerness had come from and realized that a lot of that has come from her, that she was a really early signifier for me. And because of that, I it matters to me that I come out when I teach my students that, so that they know that I'm gay and when I'm out in public that people know that about me because I think we all, uh, we are all walking examples of something and that matters to people who need examples of how to be in the world who maybe don't know how to be that or, or who are struggling to be that. So that felt really important. That's really beautiful. And I think it's so powerful that you feel safe to do that. Cause I know there's a lot of people who don't feel safe coming out or are encouraged mm -hmm. not to come out to their students, for example, um, and risking yeah. it. So do you think femme expression is undervalued or underappreciated in the LGBT community? Mm. Well, yes and no. I think that uh, it is 
invisible often in ways that um, make it feel undervalued, for sure. I think that there um, there is a way that because some queer women often pass, um, that they fly under the radar and are less visible in community. Um, and then I think that there are some gendered stereotypes about who behaves how, and some of that can come up in devaluing femme queer women uh, and the roles that they play and, you know, and how they're treated. I've certainly been um, subjected to some pretty toxic masculinity in women and queer women uh, who think that they're entitled to some sort of behavior around me because perhaps I, I'm femme and I'm small and I read in a certain way. So I think in that way, certainly. Um, but I would say the thing that has felt more compelling to me, especially having been in the South and then moved to New York and now spend time in both, um, is the way that uh, femme queerness and, and especially a, a really gendered performative way of being in relationship, of having a femme woman and a more mask woman, uh, mm that is sort of idolized in a way that feels, in, in the South, I mean, and it feels like it, it mimics uh, some more heteronormative ideas about what relationships should look like. Yeah. And in that way, I think some queer women get um, kind of put on a pedestal, you know, that like the closer a femme woman looks to a straight woman or the more desirable she is seen by straight men, the more social capital she has in that community. And that's very interesting to me because that feels very different from, from Brooklyn, where I think sort of having an old school, quote unquote, whatever that means, presentation that maybe where you read straight, again, I quotations throughout all of these things because they're complicated concepts, um, is, is sort of maybe devalued or sort of feels passe. So the cultures feel very different in that way. But yeah, I think that femme, as a femme queer woman, I've certainly struggled with visibility and how to claim that. Also how to um, not buy into gendered stereotypes around what my role is in a relationship. And sure. then also not feel like I'm playing uh, a cookie cutter idea of somebody else's gendered relationship, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I just, I mean, I was kind of thinking about everything you said and listening to this idea about stereotyping and this femme expression. And I find myself thinking, you know, as a trans woman, there's mm -hmm. always been this question within the community where a lot of times for trans women, if we are presented as too feminine, it's a question of, are we play acting as women or are we buying into the stereotypes of what we think a woman, of a woman should present as rather than what do we like or what's comfortable or what gender expression works best for us. So mm -hmm. I know I've, I, I, over the years, I've had to really kind of understand my own ideas about what does it mean to be femme as a personal expression rather than mm -hmm. society thinking that I'm play acting. Does mm -hmm. that kind of make any sense? Oh my gosh, yeah, that makes so much sense. I think that it can feel 
like so much of how we move is performance, but when people are kind of watching you to like catch you out almost, which is a thing that I know trans people have shared with me, friends of mine, of this feeling of people just scrutinize your behavior because they want to catch you in some kind of fraudulent act that trying mm. to explore and find yourself while people are watching you for signs of being performative that I mean absolutely and I think that's true of all of our expressions that when you when you come to yourself as an adult rather than as a child um, there is some performance inherent in that because you are trying things on you are trying to find who you are and some of that is inherently mimicry because you're watching other people and seeing how they do it and and then it takes a while to see who you are. And so I think that, and we're all being watched in that way, I think, by members of our own community and members of other communities who want to see how we behave, who come with their own assumptions and judgments. So yeah, absolutely, Aubrey, that definitely rings true. So Rachel, you talked a little bit about um, some of the challenges that you have faced, but is there other challenges you faced in trying to fit in with a community that doesn't always value your queer gender expression, either in Atlanta or in New York? Within queer community, you mean? Any community. Or any community, huh? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, straddling both. I think the, the culture of Southern queerness and the culture of New York queerness. I can't really speak to other spaces because, you know, Atlanta and New York are the places I've been queer in. I think trying to balance them. I think to that concept of performance, I think when I was living in Atlanta and doing some of that mimicry or performance to try to figure out who I was and then moved to New York about three years ago, feeling pretty grounded in that, um, but then feeling really scrutinized by people in New York about who I was or whether that felt performative, you know, like whether was I, how could I be this version, this queer woman who was like so femme and, you know, and whether that was some kind of performance from being queer in the South, you know, so I think trying to hold, to hold my own in two places that value really different things and to feel okay in that and not um, change myself or accommodate myself for other people. I think that that's been tricky. I think that Brooklyn especially, and this is stuff that I'm still chewing on, um, so forgive me if it's a little all over the place. I think that because Brooklyn is, is pushing, it's a place where people come and it's a place where people are interested in really pushing uh, just pushing the limits of, of what queer community looks like or what queerness looks like. Um, that again, to sort of, to be a person who somehow has this old school identity of just like being a femme woman. Uh, I don't know. I, it has made me feel sort of at odds with, um, with this, this big progressive new movement or somehow that I'm behind the times. And mm. I think that I hope that as queer community, as we together push past the confines of a gender binary and of these really limiting terms or languages that we use, um, that we remember to include everybody in that. Even people who, you know, even the butch lesbian who feels totally at home in her pronouns, um, but also just wants to 
express herself the way that she wants to express herself, that we still make room for her um, and that we, you know, we still make room for all versions of queerness. And I think that that can be a difficult thing, but I think that that's why it's so important that we, uh, that we stay true to who we are and, and feel proud of that and feel grounded in that to make room for everybody. Because as I like to say, it's a really big dinner table. You know, there's enough chairs for everybody and it and it's nice to see. And in some ways I think that Southern queerness does that better and maybe not everybody would agree with me, but I think because um, Southern culture is such that people with very different ideas or ideologies have had to live elbow to elbow, um, that maybe there's a way that queer culture there has made room for more kinds of people. Um, and yeah. I don't know, that trying to live with a foot in both worlds has, has definitely been interesting and sometimes tricky. Again, Rachel, that was just so enlightening. I want to like re-listen to what you said because you said some really powerful things there. Um, why did you leave the South? <laughs> Oh, great question. One should never do it. Uh, <laughs> <why should> I... <laughs> well, it's funny because, you know, now I go back all the time. Uh, but I I left the South to go to New York. I mean, it's New, it's New York, baby. You got to go. I think I had never lived there and I felt ready to tackle it. I think uh, I had been in Atlanta for four years and I just felt ready to... Uh, to try New York and I think but also I I do a lot of comedy I perform a lot uh, n not now that there is no theater sadly hopefully again um, but I really wanted to find queer uh, comedy and also just more queer artists and I think that while that scene is growing in Atlanta it it's still small and it felt smaller three years ago I think even in the time that I've been gone it has grown and so I really wanted to I, I had this sense of not wanting to reinvent the wheel you know I really wanted to see what other people were doing in terms of queer content and queer comedy and and how they were making that happen and uh, as a writer and as a performer I really wanted to access more of that but you know since I've been up north I have consistently uh, found reasons to come back and make work in the South, whether it's writings for Wussy Mag, which is an Atlanta-based publication, or coming back to perform, or writing sketch with a company that I used to write for here. I think um, there have been lots of opportunities in New York, and it's felt very fruitful and inspiring. Uh, but I think I expected to leave Atlanta in a more... Uh, in a more final way than I did. I just, there were always such good reasons to come back. So I think I left the South to be in a place that had really established itself as a queer Mecca of creativity. And then in doing that, I both felt uh, like I accessed that, that part of New York, uh, but also realized what was so special about the South. So I think it really took leaving Atlanta to really fully appreciate what a special place that is, because I do think it is a very special place and, and pretty unique in a lot of ways. For sure. I'm, I feel like I'm a mm -hmm. Atlanta promoter. All I do is talk about it, mm -hmm. especially its queerness. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I know. And people are like, Atlanta? Really? Less so now. I think people have really kind of caught on that Atlanta is a pretty cool place. 
but uh, still, people are like, what, Georgia? Like, what's going on there? But yeah, I think I think the fact that space is less expensive than it is in cities like New York and L.A. means that people are able to try out new things. You know, like spaces like the goat farm um, and these reclaimed industrial spaces that become performance spaces, like that's not possible in New York. There isn't space like that. And if there is, it needs to be underwritten by somebody with huge cash reserves in order to make that happen. So, you know, and that creates issues of access, uh, which disproportionately affect any marginalized community. So queer communities and communities of color have less access to make interesting work in spaces like New York. And they do, and that work is happening, um, but you you have to fight for your spot on the log. And I think that cities like Atlanta uh, just are looking for interesting, creative ideas to make work. And that feels really fruitful and alive. I feel really inspired by the, the freshness and the, and the newness of uh, cities like Atlanta. Yeah, that's so true i mean i i just i can't i i just want to give you like a high five and be like 100 percent. i mean i didn't mm-hmm. deep dive into any of my performing life in atlanta but it it seems so accessible and easy i mean mm-hmm. i did a lot of spoken word um and that was welcomed with open arms and it was a great platform for me to explore some of my queerdom including um using it as a platform for my coming out as well um i feel like i probably would be more intimidated if i was in new york because everyone there wants to be a star right (laughs) Mm -hmm. oh my gosh yeah absolutely and there's just whoever you are there's at least a few of you you know it is very hard to be one of a kind in new york because new york is the place where one of a kind people come so you end up being one of many which is comforting and can feel very much like you found your people and you found your community um but right if you're trying to make work that you're passionate about and interested in you get a lot in New York of like, we've seen this before, we've heard this before. And, you know, that pushes you to be innovative and creative, but I think it can also, yeah, be extremely intimidating. And I think Atlanta's uh, open-armed embrace towards creativity can feel really generative and exciting and accessible. Yeah, for lots of different kinds of people. So you had mentioned this idea of community, whether it's a community where everybody is a one of a kind. So in being one of a kind, you're all the same or community community in the sense that we accept everybody regardless. How do you build community? Like what like what is your sense on what does community building look like to you, whether it's social Mm -hmm. or political? What do you do? Yeah. That's a good one. Wow. These are meaty questions, y'all. Uh, okay, well, we'll give you, we'll give you uh, a softball one. What's your favorite color? Oh, my gosh. Incredible. And then back to the community <laughs> question. Yeah, exactly. Let me chew on this one. There are so many good colors, though. Um, if we're just going primary, I would say blue. Uh, if we're going deeper than that, I would say blue. <laughs> Love it. Uh, love a blue. Love so many blues. Uh, but yeah, blue. Great. Thank you. I already needed that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, we'll give you an easy one. <laughs> um, well, one fun thing uh, you should know about me when it comes to community is that I grew up in cooperative community called co-housing, uh, which is 
So a very codified idea of community, basically co-housing is this idea started in Denmark about intentional community living where the community of people comes together before the homes themselves are built and the community kind of envisions together what it wants community to look like. So I feel like I had, you know, maybe perhaps much like queerness, I had an idea of what community looked like from a young age about people just living in proximity to each other and sharing space and sharing their lives and sharing their resources. So I think that community for me has always been rooted in mutual support and um, and just closeness. I think that, that that was a hard thing to get adjusted to in New York is that it, it's very, people live very far away from each other, even though you're all crammed on these series of islands that are quite small, public transit is what it is. And so if somebody lives in Harlem and somebody else lives in South Brooklyn, um, you're not going to date. <laughs> like everybody <laughs> knows in New York that you're not going to date somebody if they live too many subway stops away because it's just completely unfeasible. So I think that um, that's a, a thing about community. I think that matters is living um, with other people in neighborhoods and, and being able to spend quality time together. Uh, but I think that um, as I get older and more comfortable in myself, I think of community as being um, just people who are really engaged in caring and listening to each other. I think the practice of deep listening is a thing that is very important to me as my girlfriend is over here smiling <laughs> because I'm so serious on deep listening, which is why I love the podcast format so much because it is really about deep listening. So I think that creating community, building community, being a part of community to me is really about, is about listening to each other and really learning how to show up for each other in big ways. And I always want that community to be expansive and inclusive rather than exclusive. And I think that we can err on the side of exclusivity in community. And I think the more we push back against that, the more we gain from other people's experiences and learning from other people. So having community that is focused on empathy and listening and inclusivity, I think are the, are the things that to me signify really successful community. you been able to stay connected to your community during this pandemic? How has that affected you? Mm-hmm. Or um, what are things that you've done um, to stay connected, given that you're on this beautiful, exclusive place in the Adirondacks? <laughs> I know. So the ultimate social distancing so far away from everybody. Well, I'll tell you one thing I have not been doing, which is improv over Zoom. Which <laughs> so is, <a> thing? Um, <laughs> In my opinion, a terrible idea. I don't know why anybody would do it, but I I will not knock anybody else's good time. As soon as this happened and all the theaters shut down, I got a gazillion invitations to do shows online, and I was racked with guilt about not wanting to do it. I, I said yes and then canceled at the last minute, and then finally I just said, Rachel, you hate this idea and you're not going to do it because you don't want to. So just give yourself the gift of not doing improv over Zoom. So I can't even tell you how successful it is because I've been too just uh, just 
totally mortified at the idea to even watch it. Um, improv is so awkward. I don't know if either of you have ever seen an improv show. Improv is like an yeah, inherently yeah. awkward format. Yeah. Um, it's fantastic. When it's executed well, it is so much fun. But it's an inherently bizarre and pretty awkward idea that there's just a bunch of people in street clothing on a stage that is entirely empty. And they're going to get a suggestion from the audience and just make things up on that stage. Um, it's such a, it's my absolute favorite performance modem. I think it's so fun. I have never laughed harder. Um, I just don't think that it translates well to a screen where everybody is in their own home. So I, that is something I have not been doing to stay connected. <laughs> I can't but, even picture that. Like as an improv performer oh my myself, I'm like, wait, I know. what? Why? Like, like, don't you need the Why energy of the crowd and the energy of the, of the other people with you? Don't you need that energy that you I feed off of? How do you do that on a screen? I don't get it. I don't either, exactly. That is why I have stayed far away from improv via Zoom. I consulted with some of my fellow improvisers about whether they were doing it, and most people seem to be pretty skeptical of the idea. So I think the three of us are um, on the right side of history, dare I say. I don't think that Zoom improv will be a thing that catches on. Sourdough starters, maybe. Zoom improv, decidedly not. Yeah, man. So, so what about your queer community yeah. or LGBTQ community? How have you been able to stay connected to them or um, have you not been connected to them because of the coronavirus? Mm. Yeah, I think that um, in sort of letting my comedy community, you know, sort of stay in a the real world and taking a step back from that, I do think that queer community is the place that I've come back to the most and I think the way that it has manifested for me the most is just uh, just really good phone conversations. I think that I have, I'm a, I do love a good phone conversation, but I don't think it's a medium that people um, necessarily go to in the age of texting and Instagram. I think a long phone conversation can feel kind of daunting, but I feel like I have totally fallen in love with talking on the phone again. I think, especially being here, I, I have limited cell, well, I have good cell service, but limited data. So I'm not able to do as much Zooming and FaceTiming as I would probably if I had Wi-Fi. So the phone ends up being the way that I'm able to communicate. And I think that um, much like I like podcasting for deep listening, I think that being on the phone also, when you take the visual out of it, uh, you're just really listening to each other. And I really love that. So I think that being up here has been both about experiencing solitude. And, you know, there's an amazing article um, by my favorite journalist of the moment, Masha Gessen. <laughs> Marcel's smiling again because I can't stop talking about Masha Gessen. They're incredible Russian-American non-binary journalist who writes a lot about uh, Trump and authoritarianism. They wrote this amazing article that I highly recommend um, on loneliness, the difference between solitude, loneliness, and isolation, Ooh. and how um, each of them are different and each of them is worth exploring and, and what it really means to be alone in solitude, you know, which is different from being lonely. So I think that part of staying connected for me here has been about being in solitude yeah. um, and figuring out what I need in order to not be lonely, but also what it means to be alone, which I think can be a very fruitful thing. 
Rachel, to me, long phone calls almost feel like those juicy letters that you would get from your pen pals. Like phone calls have Mm -hmm. almost turned into a whole new meeting um, uh, to stay connected with people. And I I agree. I think not having the visual prompt um, really pushes you to listen to the tone of voice and engage into the conversation because it's so easy to like, I don't know, like scroll through your Instagram while you're talking to someone on the phone. And then they're like, right. What do you think? And you're like, what? Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So presentness becomes a, a choice. It's rather vital. Than a default. And I think that mm-hmm. it's vital. Oh, it's so important. And I do, I mean, I could go on about listening all the time. And I think as, as two people who do podcasts, you both probably agree that listening is this really powerful tool. I also do these oral history podcasts where I work with seniors to gather their stories of their lives. And just, I'm so obsessed with the sanctity of a microphone that you put a microphone in front of somebody and they, their story becomes, uh, becomes powerful and sacred and the thing to be listened to. And I think it's one of the ways that we honor each other is by really listening to each other. Rachel, I think we only have one more question for you. Um, and I've been asking this to all of our guests, but why do you think it's important for us to talk about being queer in the South? And what does being queer in the South mean to you? Mm. Uh, oh, such a good one for the end. Wow, you guys win the award for best questions. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> just, I, I'm authorized to give out that award, so just so you know. Woo. Uh, we'll gladly accept. I, yeah, okay, good. Congratulations. <laughs> I think that talking about queerness is always important, but I think talking about Southern queerness is extra important because probably as other people on your show have talked about, or you both have said, um, just that I think the South is underrepresented in queer visibility. I think that Southern queerness is underrepresented. I think um, for Southerners, queerness is underrepresented. I think it is a huge regional cultural quadrant of the country that um, for myriad reasons uh, goes under-recognized when we talk about queer culture and the contribution to queer culture. And a huge part of that I can't even speak to because um, there is so much queer history in Atlanta that goes so far back from before I was ever there. Yeah, uh, That is amazing and needs to be celebrated. And I want to know more about it. And I feel really excited to go back there and, and learn more and celebrate more of that history. So I feel like I only have access to or have been witness to a very small portion of that. So I love this project of of getting more queer voices from the South um, out in the open for people to hear about and to see. So I think that that is a huge, important practice, both in terms of sharing with the world those particular stories of queerness in the South, but also just contributing to this larger narrative that queer people have been a part of history forever for a very, very, very long time. And it's not that those stories never existed, is that they were very intentionally cut out of the picture. You know, they were very intentionally suppressed. And so pushing back against that feels important everywhere. And I think especially important in the South. Um, For sure. That's the first part of the question. I think the second part of the question, um, to me, I think 
Southern queerness is, um, I mean, I obviously can only speak to my own personal experience of it, but I think that it felt, you know, and again, we had said before earlier in this discussion about kind of how unusual it is that I came from the liberal North and moved to what is stereotypically considered to be the conservative South and had this total awakening and um, liberation of self. But I think that there, there is something about Southern queerness that that allowed me to just really come to terms with myself. And maybe it's because a lot of people that I met had fought so hard to be who they were and had fought so hard against institutions or families or mm. cultural communities that had suppressed who they were, that there was just this incredible joyousness. There's just, I just feel joy when I think about Southern queerness. That um, I think of having fought so hard to get where we are, that people feel really ready to exercise joy and to do things with joy, whether that's trying to find a place for queerness in Christianity, you know, or whether that's trying to push back against um, racism or whether that's trying to push back against your stodgy old grandparents who like refuse to accept you, you know, that there's yeah. like, there's really that, that practice feels like it is happening with joy in the South in a way that feels really distinct and I feel really grateful to have been a part of. So that feels like what Southern Queerness has been for me. Thank you so much, Rachel, for being on the show today with us. I'm just, I'm so grateful to have your voice on here. I was telling Aubrey that it was, you know, there's a couple people on my list that I was like, I have to get these people who I know on here, but it's because they've inspired my journey in one way or another or um, related to them in a different level. And a lot of what you said today just rung true to me. Um, so intensely. So thank you so much for sharing. And I hope this also will bring other people who are listening some truth. And there's no better way for me to explain Atlanta and being queer in the South than the word joyous. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you both so much for having me. It was such a pleasure talking to you both. Well, it was amazing talking to you. Uh, thank you again for being on the show. Uh, if you all want to keep up with Rachel Garbus, you can find her on Twitter at Rachel Dash Garbus. You can find more information about this episode and the show at our website, southernqueries.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching Southern Queries. Queries is with two E's. Until next time, thanks for listening. Some credits. Production, your hosts, India and Aubrey. Audio mixing by Allison Holly. Story research, Aubrey Calvin. Editing, India Bastian. This is Southern Queries. Oh.